The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to The Journey, stories of crisis and hope. Your host is Jessica Pirro. In today's program, we will provide awareness and education on various types of crises, the impact they have on one's well-being, and provide help to empower hope for you or someone you love. This program will help you understand various types of crisis situations by hearing from experts in the crisis response field, as well as those with lived experience through a difficult time. Now, here's Jessica Pirro. shared with you every week. Um, I am the CEO of Crisis Services in Buffalo, New York, and we really want to highlight every show with a topic that addresses um, issues that crisis centers across the country and internationally deal with when we're trying to help those that are impacted by various types of crisis situations. So today I have a very um, exciting guest to share with you today. Let me, let me tell you a little bit about her. Um, the title of our show is called Forgiveness, Survival, and Her Journey from Homeless to Harvard, a discussion with Liz Murray. Liz transformed her life of despair into an inspiring journey of determination, hope, and hard-won success. The child of a drug-addicted parents who routinely ate from dumpsters and sought refuge in all-night subway stations to survive, Liz was homeless at the age of 15 and fending for herself. Determined not to be defined by her circumstances, she recognized education is the key of a fresh beginning and a whole new way of living. She earned her high school diploma in just two years and won a scholarship to Harvard University that would turn her bleak circumstances into a future filled with limitless possibilities. With sincerity, maturity, and graciousness, Liz shares her personal journey from street smarts to classroom triumphs, instantly becoming an inspiration to both student group and business of Addison's audiences alike in need of the motivation to overcome their own obstacles. Now, Liz received her Bachelor's of Science degree from Harvard University, and she's currently pursuing her Master's degree in Psychology at Columbia University. Her memoir, called Breaking Night, a memoir of forgiveness, survival, and my journey from homeless to Harvard that came out in 2010 was an instant success, making the New York Times bestseller list in its first week of the release. And Liz is an inspirational speaker and does a lot of presentations throughout the country through the Washington Speakers Bureau. So before we get started, I just want to remind our listeners that if you do have any questions for my guests today, you're uh, welcome to email us throughout the show, and you can email us at jpirovoiceamerica at gmail.com. Again, that's j-p-i-r-r-o voiceamerica at gmail.com. So I want to welcome Liz. Thank you so much for joining me today, Liz. I really appreciate you taking the time to share your story with our listeners. Yeah, Jessica, thank you for having me. It's an incredibly powerful show. I'm glad to be here. 
Oh, thank you. So why don't we just start off with, if you could share with the listeners um, a little bit about your story, about your childhood experiences. Yeah, sure. I know it's a little odd if you have, um, it's always an interesting thing if people sort of know you as uh, the homeless, the Harvard person. <laughs> right, right. People ask, well, how did that happen? Um, you know, and, you know, the, the shorthand is unintentionally. <laughs> and that's because I just grew up in... Uh, a situation where I never saw that coming, and and how that happened was because I was raised in the Bronx in New York City by two parents who had um, very serious drug addiction problems, very serious problems. Um, just to be clear, not casual use. It was the kind of use that, you know, they, they're desperate to get high every day, selling furniture and electronics around the house to use. I mean, like, desperately addicted. And that happened because they were just products of a 70s disco dancing party lifestyle and they they got addicted and you know it's funny because that generation you know they all are known for using drugs but then they had children and and my sister lisa and i we grew up in the aftermath of what happened when the party was over and so we grew up in the bronx in this neighborhood where a lot of our um our childhood was really shaped by our parents pursuit of that next high and over, over the years that we spent together as a family, anyone who knows anything about addiction knows that if you don't treat it, it doesn't really stay the same, and it doesn't really get better. It just kind of gets worse, becomes more and more and more unmanageable. So we had a real deterioration in our family where we went from being able to hold the pieces together for a good chunk of time, and then our family just went down. You know, our, our parents... Uh, both acquired HIV through sharing needles with strangers. We went from having some sense of connection and love, and we had a very loving relationship despite all the problems we had, but we became increasingly disconnected as they got sick, and eventually all of that culminated into homelessness when we lost our apartment, and my mother went off to hospice, and my father went to homeless shelters, and we all were separated. It's, it's an amazing, um, it is an amazing story, and, and as you shared, the various traumas that you've experienced as a child, you know, with your parents having a drug addiction, you've, you've shared in your, your story poverty and hunger, and then also losing your mom at, at a young age as a teenager, it's, all these types of experiences really could have led you down a very different path. Um, what, is yeah. it that, what is it that made you decide to make that change in your life um, when you were a teenager? Well, you know, the thing is, um, I think a big piece of it, you can't discount, um, as, as cliche as it sounds, you know, when you talk about the force that love can be in a person's life, it's actually tremendous to have one meaningful relationship even in your life. And I had a couple of very loving people in my life. Um, my parents had a lot of problems, but they did what they could to, you know, sit at my bedside and talk to me or encourage me to read and, and my mother would kiss my face and tuck me in at night and tell me her kids were the best thing that ever happened to her. So I had that as a foundation. And later on in life, when I was a teenager and I did end up um, going from a group home, a bad situation in the group home, to couch surfing as a teenager, which ended up in homelessness, and then all of that went on. Um, and I was sort of living between friends' couches, sleeping outside and visiting my mother in the hospital and she was dying. Underneath all of it, I had this idea that life could be another way. And, you know, it didn't have to be like this. And I think a lot of people actually have that. I don't think that makes me unique. I, I think, first of all, a lot of people know what it feels like to suffer in these ways. 
And I also think that a lot of people know what it feels like to have that voice in the back of their head. It's kind of like no matter what it is you are doing, there's that little voice in the back of your head that knows what you should be doing, and it nudges you toward this idea that life could be better, right? If you put your head down on the pillow at night, right, and you think, you picture what could what could be possible. I had that, just like everyone does. And it was, it was you know, I was not engaging it. I had these ideas of, of like, the what if. What if I went back to school? What if I changed my life? What if, right? And like most people, I waited a time period saying, there's going to be a better time, not right now, and all of that. And, and when I lost my mom, in this way, I was putting life off. I had dropped out of school. I was sleeping on my friend's couches. I was sleeping in the street. And I had this idea that I was going to do my life later. When my mother passed away, you know, we had this very intense connection. And when I lost her, what came to mind, I mean, even as I buried her when I was 16, we buried her the day after Christmas. It was bitter cold outside. I was crashing at my friend's houses. It was just a really dark time. I remembered how many times she sat at the foot of my bed. And Lizzie, she called me, Lizzie, I'm going to change my life. Lizzie, one day, one day. And listening to like some future tense and then dying without fulfilling her dream with like that love that we have it, hey Liz are you still there wait for the situation to change there is no later I'm not going to do my life later my life is now I'm, just, I'm not rehearsing my life and when I'm done I'm going to go do my life this is my only life and my mom taught me that when I lost her and I, I think what really opened up for me inside of that was to realize that you can't, you know, it's not that when you're in crisis like that, it's not that you can control all these situations. I think people are, they oversimplify how hard it is. It's very hard. But there is something said for making a decision to not wait more for something to come along to change everything. I realized nothing was, no one was coming. You know, like I had to. I had <laughs> right. to do something different if I wanted it to be different. Does that make sense? Absolutely. It's that definitely that power within that. It helps to make the change. Sometimes, you yeah. know, like you said, it's the what ifs that really can um, put people, uh, almost paralyze people from from making that choice for themselves, thinking that something else around them might um, make that choice for them. But it really does come from within to say, yes, I, I can do this, and I and I need to do this. So I totally, I totally understand your 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 comments, and I think it's a, a very inspiring comment that might give hope to listeners that are, are tuning in as well that when you're always putting something off, really that control relies, lies within you um, to make that decision that day to, to make a change. Now, you shared, you know, that obviously you, the result of your experience um, you resulted in homelessness for you. And I think that when sometimes people see someone that's homeless, they, they have this mentality that, you know, they, they, they put themselves in this situation and they need to work to get, to get themselves out of it. What is your reaction to that viewpoint, and what would you say to others to change that? What is my reaction to what specifically about people's attitudes of homelessness? I just I couldn't hear you for one second in that. Oh yeah, just how you know people's viewpoints about homelessness. What is what is your reaction to that? That it's um, you well, know there's I, a view that they right. put themselves in that situation, so they need to just get themselves out of it. I love that question actually, and I'm so glad you asked that because. Um, people's attitudes toward a person who is either homeless, we can extend that question, Jessica. Let's look at people's attitudes towards poverty in our country and toward homelessness. Uh, well, I would say in one word, the word is judgmental, you know, and, and we have this idea in our country that 
listen, I, I don't even want to perpetuate this with my background because I talked about how important it is to make a decision. That decision is only one piece of a very large picture where you need support and services and social safety nets and, and uh, you know, a, an economy that works for all people. It's so much more complicated than people really want to think about. So they look at a homeless person and they blame that person. They blame them like it's their fault, like this is the land of opportunity that's equal for everybody. So if you don't have a lot, must be a character deficit on your part. And it's just, it's willful ignorance. It's really sad. It's like that question people always ask me. I'm, I'm, this really fascinates me. It blows my mind. I talk on stage. I'm in front of a bunch of people, hundreds of people. We're doing a Q&A, and we have the opportunity to create a conversation that can really forward the whole room. And people want to know, do you give money to panhandlers? And they're fascinated by, by my answer that, of course, if someone's asking and I can, I do. And I think, why is, let's, let's unpack that. Why is that what's interesting to you? Isn't it somewhat more interesting to ask yourself why so many people are banned? <laughs> why are so many people unable to afford housing? I was walking with my four-year-old son in the street, and he asked me why a man was on the street hungry. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, because the guy was saying, I'm hungry. And I explained to him that that man doesn't have his own food. And my son looked, he couldn't register. He, he looked at everything, he said, we have to get him some food. Let's get him food, right? And, and then in that moment, I looked at my four-year-old and I thought, what is the next thing I'm going to say to him? Because mm. either I'm going to explain to him that it's okay that man has no food and we have to keep walking, or, you know, is my son's outrage more appropriate or my apathy more appropriate? Like, his is the more sane reaction. Anyway, I, I say that to say, Jessica, that people's attitudes um, are out of context. They want to blame an individual and not look at a system. We need to ask more questions about whether or not this economy and this system is working for for the majority of its people. And I think that's such an important uh, message. And I know what um, I had shared with you before we started the show that I saw you when you presented here at the University of Buffalo back in the fall. And I and I do remember. Um, there's many points that I remember from your presentation, but I remember one that 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 stuck with both my husband and I is exactly what you explained is that should we give money to panhandlers? And that's just not that's not the question to be asking. It's what are we what do we need to do? Like you said, to share and to give and to come up with other ways to help people that are less fortunate or in very difficult circumstances when we can give. And I think that's a piece that is that change in the shift of how people look at individuals who are experiencing homelessness um, and what role they play um, in helping to prevent that for that person to continue. Um, so right. I, I just I feel like that's a really important message to, to get out. Or Jessica, if I could just one sentence about that, just to have the humility to think that I may not actually really know why that person's on the street and that I should be less certain of myself and have the humility and be humble and, and curious and at least pursue the, the notion that there is something that I could learn that I don't already know and I may not be correct in my assumptions. Right. Let's start there. Absolutely. Now, what are, with the increased, you know, you talked about your parents um, experiencing addiction, and there's such a focus right now with the increased um, opioid epidemic across the country. Um, do you think that this attention is starting to help us humanize addiction better? Or are you seeing any differences as a result of that as you're talking with people? I am seeing an increase in attention on the opi- opioid epidemic going on right now, and I find it fascinating because if you if you contrast that to people's reactions to the crack epidemic in the 80s, it's actually um, 
a really great way to highlight how racist our country is in a way because we had a, a, an epidemic exactly like this in the 80s in, in New York City and in major urban centers across the United States and people of color were, um, were addicted in exactly this way and they were dying in exactly this way. And if you just spend even a little bit of time reading articles from back then, what our national media did was demonize the people who had been addicted to these drugs. I find that very interesting. And now that we have, uh, you know, another race, the white race associated with this kind of epidemic, we are seeing a lot more compassion for, um, for people who are addicted. We're understanding, um, however it came about, unfortunately, I think in contrast to this white racist, um, but we are starting to see that, you know, Maybe addiction should be looked at like a disease. Maybe it's not just that somebody's choosing to get high. If they could stop, they would. They're killing themselves. So I do see that there's some national awareness coming about. I wish that we were able to look a little more deeply and see that different. there's really no difference in, in the opioid epidemic and other epidemics that we've seen plague people. And I also wish that our country would um, shift the conversation away from criminalizing addiction into understanding that this is like a chemical disorder that's happening for people. In my own case, watching my parents, uh, they were so severely addicted, it was so obvious that they were sick. You know, it's so obvious. It's not something that they woke up every morning and just said, you know, I could do this today or I could do that. I mean, they were compelled to the point of being Mm -hmm. suicidal, frankly. And I think that we really need to see addiction that way, and I, I am seeing the conversation shift in that direction, yes. Okay, okay. Well, we um, are just going to be heading into our first break, and so uh, for those that are listening, Liz Murray is our guest, so please stay with us. Uh, You're listening to The Journey, Stories of Crisis and Hope. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Much of the time, the illnesses that people feel are simply symptoms, and they mask the root cause of what the real health problem is. You can take back control of your own health, starting with Billionaire Healthcare. This program is hosted by Ashley Black. Our program will introduce you to fascia, which is the knowledge of the living matrix. This bit of knowledge can bring you the health secrets that only the rich and famous have known until now. Listen Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health & Wellness. Tune in every Tuesday for C. diff, spores, and more with hosts Nancy Kerala and Dr. Chandra Bali Ghosh. Our program is to provide information about C. diff, healthcare-associated infections, and more. Nancy is a C. diff survivor, healthcare professional, and the founder and executive director of the C. diff Foundation. And Dr. Ghosh is the chairperson of research and development for the C. diff Foundation. Together with their guests, we'll explore infection prevention, treatments, environmental safety, and more. Listen every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time 11 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness. Take us on the go. It's even easier now. The Voice America Talk Radio Network has launched our mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market to download the app powered by Aircast. It's free and no registration is necessary. In minutes, you could be enjoying your favorite Voice America Talk Radio host, no matter where you are, in the car, out and about, while traveling, or anytime you can't be close to your computer. Catch up on the archives you've missed or discover new shows on the spot. 
lot. Search Voice America at your favorite app store. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to The Journey, stories of crisis and hope. We'd love to hear from you with any questions or comments about the show. Please send an email to jpirrovoiceamerica at gmail.com. That's J-P-I-R-R-O, voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the journey. Here again is Jessica Pira. Welcome back. Back, everyone. My guest today is Liz Murray, and we're, we're having a, a very amazing conversation about her experiences um, as a child and as into adult. And um, as she shared, it's it's you know her she's known as the homeless to Harvard story, and that's that's really a, such an amazing experience um, that Liz has has had in her life. So as we continue this discussion, Liz, you know you talk about education as playing a big role for you and a change in your life, and you you share it in your story. You've had great mentors as a teacher that really helped you embrace education. Um, can you share how that felt as you experienced um, that change in yourself and your circumstances? Yeah, I mean, definitely. I really, really lucked out because when, okay, so I was a teenager who fell into a category that I only later learned was this extremely high risk. What's this thing now they use to measure traumatic life events, the ACES score and all that? And I had yes. maybe an, yeah. eight, an eight out of nine or you know, when I was, um, you know, and you reach ninth grade and you have one credit and a 42 average, but you're actually 17 in the ninth grade. Like I was, you know, undercredited over, you know, too old to go to school, all these awful things, homeless. I'd lost my family, like in every risk category you can imagine. And then I had this, this spark set off to go looking for a school. And I knocked on the doors of a few schools looking to be let in. And unfortunately, you know, people looked at me and said, well, you know, thanks. I think you missed the boat. It's time to apply for your GED, which actually is a wonderful thing to get a GED. That's fine. But I, I was sort of like dead set on going to high school and was actually being told by teachers that I missed the opportunity and was sort of too old and couldn't do it. And as I was doing that, I just had this dumb luck to walk into a progressive public high school that had just opened in Chelsea, the Chelsea area of Manhattan. And this school, this wonderful school, is called Humanities Preparatory Academy. And though I didn't know it, I was walking into a situation where just a few years prior, this team of of progressive, um, dedicated teachers had come together to sort of solve a dilemma in this larger school in Manhattan because so many kids were dropping out and failing and not doing well. And they banded together to create a small school environment. And they were activists, really. They saw education as a matter of social justice. And rather than treat kids who were failing as somehow broken, like they had a deficit, this small team of teachers had designed this amazing school. They designed it after, they modeled it after these elite private schools that cost like $50,000 a year to go to. And, you know, most people would say these code red kids, you have to put them in dropout prevention. And and the teachers ignored that. And they went and modeled a school for us that was, um, you know, it was modeled right after kids who had the most privilege. And so I walked into the school off the street. The other teachers were making fun of this team of teachers. They said, oh, good luck with your failure academy, right? They made fun of them. Mm. And I walked into, quote, unquote, failure academy, humanities prep, um, like 
two weeks after it became an official school, went from a program to becoming a school. And the, the one of the co-founders interviewed me, and I was accepted to the school, and I flourished in the context of a progressive caring education. Really um, had the luck to, to find out that my curiosity had an, a place to flourish and that that relationships really with caring educators could become a catalyst um, to my education. So I just got really, really lucky because it was at that turning point. I could have gone either way, and, and that's where I walked in. So I spent a few years there being supported by amazing teachers, growing as a person, and I think slowly what happened in that context is I went from thinking of myself as separate from society, as so many of us do when we come from poverty, we mm-hmm. see ourselves as separate, right? Society's over there. I'm over here. Right. And I shifted into understanding uh, a concept, a self-concept that included, you know, seeing myself as a citizen, as somebody mm-hmm. who had things to contribute, as someone who could be a part of the world at that critical time. Wow. And that is, it's, it's so interesting because, like you said, you, you feel separate from, from society, but that's so critical to be a part of something larger than yourselves. And, and education is a big part of how we get to where we are in our lives. And so it's a, it sounds like an amazing program in school that really helped you. Now, when you got into Harvard, that must have been a pretty amazing moment. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, this is just a kind of an interesting question. I'm curious to your reaction. But sometimes we see that when you have a child who maybe is coming from a family where a higher education or college education isn't the norm, um, and then you have of the first generation or first child that gets accepted, there's almost a tension, if you will, of, well, this life is good enough for us. Why isn't it good enough for you? Did you have any reaction from your family or your extended family at all um, as you were pursuing your higher education? Yeah, you know, there, that definitely. I had a lot of that. And I think I'm wondering, whenever I, you know, I do something like this, I'm always wondering who's listening to your show right now. And I'm like, who's out there right now? And I'm wondering about people, you know, if they're trying to better their lives. I speak with a lot of people who experience that. They come out of a situation where they're the only person trying to pursue their education and people start kind of looking at them like, do you think you're better than us? Or right. you're big for your britches or that kind of thing. I, I don't have a lot of blood family. I do have some. I, I don't have a lot. So a lot of it was my circle of friends. And one thing I'm really happy to say is that most of them were incredibly supportive and continue to be a central and critical part of what I consider to be my family today. However, there were a handful of people that did have a reaction and started to, you know, and I think it's hard to actually attack someone trying to better themselves. You have to attack the person's character. You have to attack something else about the person. And so I did receive a lot of criticism from a handful of people who grew up with me um, who just really, I think, didn't want, you know, I, I think something about what happened was um, threatening to them. But, you know, there's something to be said about that in another way, right? Because even though that's not kind and that was very devastating to me at the time and made me, you know, it, it shook my certainty in myself. You know, it, it is upsetting that we live in a society where it is hard for everybody to have access to the appropriate opportunities, right? So right. I just described to you walking into the school and how lucky was I. How frustrating is it if you don't have that luck and you mm-hmm. see someone who's right next to you knocking on doors and they get that opportunity. So in some sense, you can we can like villainize the person who absolutely tried to take me down and was awful to me, who there is a specific person. But at the same time, I have sat there and thought, well, of that person and I grew up and I worked hard and I just didn't get that like bigger break 
that is hard to see, and it would be nice if our society made it less rare and more accessible to everyone. So there's that way to look at it, too. Absolutely. And I think, like you said, if, for those that are listening and, and you know, providing a, a message today, it's support and compassion and, and empathy for everyone around you, regardless if it's, you know, the same success you have or not, I think is an important message for people to take away because you could be a big part in that path for them to succeed or not succeed based on your reaction or judgment um, of that situation. So um, now I had shared, you know, earlier that I, I um, saw you speak um, last fall at the University of Buffalo, they have the Distinguished Speakers uh, series. Um, and as you shared a little bit earlier at the end, you have a Q&A um, piece of it. And I know there was a student that got up and was sharing her experiences, I, I, probably a social work student, um, you know, and just sharing her experiences of doing some work with one of the after school programs and, and shared some of her frustration and a little bit of looking for your feedback on ways to maybe help a child that maybe isn't responsive to that work efforts or their, um, their you know, attempts to, to try to help them. And, you know, I think what you shared um, and said back to her, um, you said, just be there no matter what. And in there, no matter what, meaning just be there for them whenever and whatever is going on. And it was such a powerful statement to me as a social worker by trade um, and running a crisis center that we always talk about, you know, that um, you just need to be there for people. You don't know, you know, we can never understand what other people are experiencing. Even if you've experienced it to a point yourself, it's, it's going to be different. Um, and so I just, it's such an extremely powerful statement. And I'm just what that meant to you to say something like that to to the the member in the audience. What was it that that kind of well, drove that response? I can, I can tell exactly what it is. Um, it's really brutal to come out of um, poverty and and challenge. And even if you've had a little bit of success, and people are patting you on the back, sometimes it's even worse. This idea of people, there's this conditional kind of um, quote unquote help that people want to give you. And what that's about sometimes is you can quickly sniff out if it's more about the other person or if it's really for Mm -hmm. you. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we have ideas in our head about, you know, what we think is helpful. And sometimes that's also tied to someone's career pursuits and their ego and the results they would like to see themselves create in their career as a a helper. Um, But that can be quite brutal for someone who's in a situation where they're just trying to figure out how to make it through the day. And you may have a logical reason why a person who's in crisis needs to behave in A, B, and C manner, but that may not at all match with where that person is, and it may not agree with their self-concept, with their sense of safety for what they could be allowed to do without feeling, you know, triggering PTSD or other issues. Like, you just have no idea what it feels like for that other person. So I think that attunement is really important when you're in a helping mm-hmm. profession to make sure that what you're offering really is has application for where a person actually is. So that's half. The other half is that when you come out of situations like this, you're used to people, you come often from a history where people leave. People leave, they just leave you, you know, mm-hmm. that you become too much and people leave, whether it was a significant relative or a person who saw themselves as helpful to you and then got frustrated at how you received the care and they laughed, people leave. So it's quite striking if, if you're in crisis and in, in trouble to experience a person who shows up and does not leave. 
<laughs> it's, it stands out in absolute contrast and doesn't have an agenda, but is there simply to be there and to be kind of a no matter what to you. That in itself, trust the person you, you, you seek to help, trust them to find value in that because it is so deeply valuable. Absolutely. And that's so powerful. And, and like I said, you know, we, um, we're the work that we, crisis centers do across the country, a lot of time it's working with, with those that want to do this work to understand that it isn't a script. You know, someone isn't going to follow a set script or it isn't a cookie cutter approach that you really do have to build that trust and rapport and, and just that, that understanding to hear what that person's needs are at that moment so that you can help them and have them you know, kind of direct and guide you on what they want to be helped with, which is really, really important um, for success. Um, So, you know, you shared, um, you know, just your survival and and your successes um, and your experiences. Um, Do you ever hear people um, use your story in a way against others? Like, so, you know, maybe when you were growing up and you had successes, did you ever hear um, people say to another student or um, or even just now, you know, they look at her, you know, she was able to do this. Everybody should be able to do this. Have you ever had that I experience? Love, I absolutely <laughs> love that question. And I think you and I began to touch on this just uh, in the previous segment. Yes, of course. You know, I, people, and that's where I knew that I had a responsibility that was uh, really profound. I figured that out pretty quickly. I remember I went to speak. I speak at fundraisers very often. I really enjoy speaking at fundraisers because I like to use my message for uh, the purpose of people seeing how one life can be changed by supports and services and then directing people to, to give, right, so that that gets done. And I, I enjoy that. But one time, many years ago, I was at this... Um, country club where some folks were fundraising for a homeless shelter, and you could just tell that their understanding of the challenges uh, that these people face is just so, and I'm not trying to make anyone a bad guy, they just really had no cultural competence about about what Mm -hmm. homelessness really was. And when I was done speaking, this older gentleman came over and patted me on the back, and he said, you're the reason poverty is not really an obstacle. (laughs) Mm. And he took the age. I mean, my hand to my heart, he took the wind out of me. I, I sat in a stone silence in the car driving to the airport, and I just thought, oh, my God, what did I just do? I can't let my life be used for that. That's so wrong. And I don't, I mean, it's morally wrong, but it's also grossly inaccurate. Right. It's wrong on so many levels. And so I was so struck by that that I made sure in moving forward in life to, to clarify for people that there's a lot more going on than maybe obvious to you about why people are in the situations that they're in. And though, though all change in a person's life requires the absolute decision to do that, the decision by itself is not enough for the change. It requires the change, but the change by itself is not sufficient. When you know, people get into this either-or thinking, is it either mm-hmm. the determination of a person <laughs> or is it the support of services? And you know, I, I'm a firm believer that it's both. I need right. to be able to have a, a willingness to... to put my best foot forward every day, even if it's tiny increments. And then when I do, I need to be met with programs in my society that that meet me halfway, and together that comes together. That makes a tapestry. That makes a symphony. But it's not one or the other. Right. 
Okay, well, we have just a few minutes before we're heading into break. So um, I just was curious, you know, you'd mentioned earlier the ACE study and, and your ACE score, um, and we'll touch on that a little bit in the next segment when we have more time. But do you have any fear of your personal history or the traumas that you've had impacting you and your success today? I don't think I can ever separate my current life from the traumatic situations that happened. Of course, I mean, I constantly, I think I'm hyper aware of my mortality because of it. I think that it's it's both good and bad, right? Like it's, mm-hmm. it's a double-edged sword. It can, in a sense, trigger situations that come up. You know, if I see every new mom, I have two small children now. Every time someone becomes like, a new mom, they, they, I've heard all these stories. I know I'm not alone. Every, the world seems especially dangerous. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> right, like how could I ever put my child in a vehicle? I never realized cars were so dangerous until I held my newborn baby, right? Like, you know, I, I definitely went through all that. But I think I had a little bit of an extra dose of it because mm-hmm. in my experience, I had lost people. It was not just people that I've mentioned in my story to the public, but other people that were critical to my, my well-being growing up uh, died very suddenly from drugs or other things. And so I... I growing up with that kind of trauma, for sure. You know, I, I hold my children a little closer, and I look at them, um, you know, with the utmost appreciation that they're there, but sometimes it can border into not being present in the moment. Because it's like, what is there? Everyone's still here now. Enjoy now, <laughs> you know? And right. I don't know if I'll ever be able to separate that from, from who I am, and that's just where I come from. Absolutely. And I think, you know, like you shared, um, when you have children, it's just that that hyper awareness to what's around you, but with also knowing what can happen. And I think that your story, you, what you've experienced, you know what could happen to young children. Um, and so to be able to protect in a, in a different way um, with that knowledge, but I, you know, your message is really important, but you also have to stay present and be part of the, the day-to-day and not always thinking about the what-ifs could happen next um, uh, is really important. I think as a parent and Absolutely. just as family um, is really, really important. So we um, are just having an amazing discussion with Liz Murray today. So we're heading into break. So we will continue with Liz in just a few minutes. So please stay tuned. You're listening to The Journey, Stories of Crisis and Hope. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. We are bombarded daily with information about beauty products and anti-aging treatments. Do you know how they have been tested? Are they truly going to make a change or just take the change out of your pocket? Tune in to Shelly's Show & Tell with host Shelly Hancock. We'll bring you the top-rated skincare products and treatments tested by Real Transformation Skin Care Centers. We'll motivate you to make the best changes. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health & Wellness. Transformational healing includes energy medicine as well as hands-on healing. Tune in every week to Transformational Healing with Dr. Bonnie Morrow. If you want to know more about the business and science of energy fields, chakras, and the medical and spiritual community, join our expert guests as we work together to bring you closer to your personal health vision. Transformational Healing is heard live every Thursday at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. 
are listening to The Journey, stories of crisis and hope. We'd love to hear from you with any questions or comments about the show. Please send an email to jpirrovoiceamerica at gmail.com. That's J-P-I-R-R-O, voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to The Journey. Here again is Jessica Pira. Welcome back, everyone. My guest today is Liz Murray, and we've been having a very rich discussion about her experiences and sharing her story. Um, and in the last segment, we were just touching on the experiences of trauma, and um, Liz had mentioned a little bit earlier in the show about the ACE study, which is the Adverse Childhood Experience Study. And actually, Liz, we did a show last week about uh, the ACE study and, and trauma-informed care, um, so it feeds very nicely into our discussion today. Um, how do you how do you help educate the impact of trauma as part of your story? I mean, I'm sure that's something that um, has been infused as you've done your speeches and and just talking about um, those types of different exposures. Um, Is that something you've seen um, come more in, you know, through the years as you've talked about your experience with with this community or who you're presenting to? Do you get a lot of questions around the trauma piece? Totally. Well, also, I think people are talking about trauma, but they don't realize they're talking about trauma. So what they right. think they're talking about, once again, this, this goes back so much to our earlier discussions, it all threads through, truly, because what happens is that um, my when you have, okay, you're, if you have a title over your life, you know, like homeless to Harvard, it's interesting the attention that that attracts. So I'll be invited to teach somewhere and I'll go, and sometimes it'll be a really conservative group of folks who I understand why they feel the way they feel, and they're sort of there to have me kind of speak up about why people can can white-knuckle through things. And as I get there, um, I don't know if I'm a little bit of a Trojan horse going in on time, you know, like, (laughs) guys, that's actually not what I believe at all. And I, I go in and I really unpack for them. But to their credit, like, once people, you know, so much of what we like to do is we like to make a good guy and a bad guy in the world. And the more I'm out there, I learn it's not like that most of the time. It really, a lot of the um, the um, angst in our society, a lot of it is just such awful misunderstanding. It really is. Mm-hmm. We don't have the education, and I'm not speaking about poor people not being formally educated. Wealthy people are not educated on the lifestyle and the challenges of people who are living without means. Like, we, we it's mutual, right? So we don't understand. There's this huge misunderstanding. So when I show up and I'm talking about these issues and people start saying to me, well, why doesn't someone just go to school? Why doesn't someone just get a job? It's really awesome because I get this opportunity to start talking about trauma and mm-hmm. what happens to people. And even if they're presented an opportunity, how trauma is impacting their, their ability to come to work every day, to manage anxiety and stress. I'm speaking from personal experience. You know, it's like I'm sitting here and I have a paper to write. And, you know, I, I feel a panic in my heart. Why? You know, I'm, I'm sitting here and I'm re-experiencing trauma that I've come from. And I think one key question that I'm sure you're familiar with, but I fell in love with last year um, when someone related this to me with a social work background was, you know, a great breakthrough for our whole nation would be if we saw people in these situations struggling in this way, coming from trauma, you don't ask what's wrong with someone, you ask what happened to them. Absolutely. Right? And I love that I love that question. And yes. I, it's been top of mind ever since, and I share it whenever I can. So I'm in a unique position because I get the attention of people who don't otherwise want to look at these issues. 
because they think that I have something different to talk about. And then I show up and I go, surprise, guys, it's actually more complicated than I can tell you from experience. And, mm-hmm. and I, I do often find myself unpacking when people think it's a moral deficit, someone's being lazy, something else, really showing them how trauma can, can de- debilitate a person. Right. Right. Yeah. And it's so critical and and talking about that that shift of moving from what's wrong with you to what happened to you. I mean, it's it is a huge shift and it's it's a shift that we all, you know, from the work that that, you know, our organization does here in Buffalo to businesses and workplaces as well. It's really understanding why is somebody coming late to work all the time or why they're having a hard time. Sometimes you got to rethink how you're approaching them to see how you can support them maybe in a different way so they can be can they can become successful. So, you know, I just want to talk a little bit about your book um, and that process, what it was like for you writing the book. Was it, was it healing? Yeah. Was it difficult? Or was it a little bit of both? It's, it's all of that, right? It's so difficult yeah. um, in certain ways. But you know what? I actually have this really, I think when you have a book in you, you just know it. And here's another thing where I'm almost, if you could see my face, I got this little smile because I, I look for people when I talk about this process. If I'm in a room, it's one of my favorite things to do. If I, when I speak on stage at these fundraisers and things, I'll mention, you know, seizing the day and following your dreams. And, and I look and I say, you know, I know someone out there wants to write a book. And there's like always about 10 people in a big group who lean, who poke out, you know, poke their head up and lean forward. And I, I know it, it's such a huge burden to have a story inside of you that you have not gotten out. Mm-hmm. experiences and what's really cool whoever's listening right now on the radio you're not listening to some woman who had a, a super unique thing and only she could write a book like actually if you're listening right now you <clears throat> absolutely have a story everyone has a story if you think you have a book in you you probably do um, mm-hmm. it's just a matter of knowing that even if you think it's not there aren't a lot of significant events to write about it's how you tell that story that makes it interesting for other people because no one has ever walked in your shoes. No one has ever seen all the things that you've seen. And so when I really connected to there was like a value in sharing that and it could be a contribution and and maybe shift some conversations in our society around what's possible for people, I I really loved the process. It was painful because you you have to, it's a lot of work, Um, but I tried to only write about things that, I felt strongly about. And if you will write about things that you have really strong gut feelings about, um, that'll be your best writing. Absolutely. Now, the title of your book is called Breaking Night. What is the meaning behind the title? So, in the Bronx, you know, I don't know how widespread this is. I thought I might have heard it in L.A. once years ago, and it's kind of old school now, but in the Bronx, if you stay up all night until the sun rises, we just call that Breaking Night. So, okay. it's like, you know, we'd walk in the streets. What do you do? I'm breaking night. I'm walking around, you know. And, and when I was homeless, I was staying at my friend's houses. And I actually, it was as an adult, I came to identify myself really as homeless. I didn't think of myself that way. I was crashing at my friend's house. And, and I kept telling myself, I'm just breaking night. And at some point, I came to really understand that not having a home made you homeless. And, you know, and, and I had that breakthrough. And then when I sat down to write my memoir, I realized that it was a beautiful metaphor and actually mm-hmm. a friend of mine um, helped me come up with that name and it was like a metaphor for breaking through the darkness nice that's the uh, that's a that's a great that's a great way to kind of have a couple different messages um, of what that what that, those words mean now what has surprised you the most about telling your story 
Or is there anything that surprises um, you anymore? Is there anything yeah, I mean, that surprises I, you? So, I mean, it's so weird. I think about, like, if you have somebody calls you and said, I read a, an article because how it happened was I, I got a scholarship from a newspaper and the newspaper wrote my story. And then all of a sudden you get all these phone calls. People go, we, we, Barbara Walters wants to feature your story. I'm like, what? You know, it's just so <laughs> unbelievable. I'm like, no, come on. I think it's just not believing that that would really happen. And then it did. And then they were like, well, now they want to make a Lifetime movie. Well, now people mm-hmm. want you to like, write a book. And it just kept, I mean, I, I almost it just was just, it kept getting funnier and funnier. I was like, this isn't real. This can't be real. This is what happens to other people. And it's changed my my perception of what is real. <laughs> I just didn't think that could actually happen to somebody. And <clears throat> it's also such a quirky experience now because when I meet someone who I've never met before, there's always this countdown until like they find out that I'm that person, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> I meet somebody, they're like, so what do you do for a living? I'm like, well, you know, I wrote a book and I, you know, speak and I well, what's that about? And then I'm always like two seconds away from having to tell somebody all these things. And <laughs> so that's, that's been an interesting journey. But to have what other people call, you know, your life has now people refer to that as my story. So to have my life become a story, that's been very interesting. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned earlier um, one of the questions that you always get um, when you do your Q&As after presenting. There was a one question you talked about with panhandlers and giving money to panhandlers. But is, is there any other other questions that you're always asked about? Are there other questions that I'm always asked about the panhandling? Yeah, and I think I am asked a lot about um, forgiveness for my parents. That's a big one because mm-hmm. I mentioned that I forgave my parents, I forgive them, and and they can't understand how I could feel love toward my parents, even though they were getting high and we didn't have enough food. They can't understand that. And I just try to explain to people that, you know, you it's experience that does that. Because, I, I mean, I had an academic, this one guy with a PhD one time, he was, like, you know, telling me about all these statistics and his research and sort of telling me why... I was angry, but I didn't know it. And I'm not saying I haven't been devastated. I'm devastated by it. I didn't say it was okay. I just said I didn't think it was their fault. And, and, and he went on and on about his statistics. And I just listened to him for a while. And I, I made sure I was like, sir, do you have a PhD? He's like, yes, ma'am. And I said, well, bless your heart, sir. You know, <laughs> I told him, you, know, you can research whatever you like in your lab. But you know what? Nothing that you read or research will replace experience. Yeah, right. and, I, and I can tell people from experience that, um, you know, watching my mother struggle, I haven't had a hot meal for a whole day, and my mother hasn't had a hot meal for two or three days, and her teeth are coming out from malnutrition. You know, you learn that people can't give you what they don't have. And I, I think that's one of the most common things that I'm hearing from people is, like, really getting this idea of that people can't give you what they don't have. Right. Right. How now? You, your sister. You talked a little bit about your sister earlier. Is is her response the same as yours when it comes to your you know, parents? I like to leave space for for the um, for all of us. I think we get so, such rigid ideas, especially about our family members. That I'm, I haven't asked her in, in a few years, so I'm going to leave the mm-hmm. space that I don't know what her current belief is in it. But the last time we spoke about it, um, she was convinced that our father was a sociopath, and um, she she agreed with me that. Our mother was one of the most loving people that has, like, ever walked the earth. And I mm-hmm. think she was also very broken up about what happened, but she didn't blame our mother for it, who was, like, you know, our mother's schizophrenic, legally blind, a trafficking survivor, you know, like, all these things. I think right, she right. really got that. But, you know, she had a lot of anger, and that's okay, too. 
Right, right. Now, you're currently pursuing your master's in psychology at Columbia. Um, what decided, what did you decide, or why did you decide to pursue this type of degree? I mean, I really uh, have always been interested in psychology. I just have been interested in why people do the things they do. And mm-hmm. I think some of that comes from, it wasn't until later that I realized my dad, I, I knew, but I didn't think about that my dad had studied psychology, so maybe it was just hearing him talk about it, but also... You know, I, growing up, I didn't have a lot of um, trusted sources to ask for advice, as you can imagine. And so when I ended up, my, my father taught me to love to read, right? My father loved to read. And so I inherited from him just this love, this curiosity to learn things. And when I ended up kind of without my family structure and spending a lot of time hanging out in the streets with my friends as a teen, um, I found my way to Barnes & Noble <laughs> and I, one day I walked into the self-help section and I was homeless and I was like, this is great. People can tell you what happens and you can just avoid the mistakes. And like, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I stopped listening to self-help books, which apparently is an endorsement because I guess that means they work, right? But I was literally just drawn to this idea that it was so, what an amazing feeling to, to think that all the pain that I thought was happening to only me was mm-hmm. actually uh, classic. You know, what do they say in recovery? You're just another bozo on the bus. I, I was so relieved to learn that whatever dilemma I found myself in, almost, I could walk to some shelf in a bookstore that was based in psychology or self-help or somewhere and just read about what people already knew about this dilemma and it would accelerate my ability to understand myself and my situation better and, and what I could do to get out of it. So I, this is just an extension of, of that part of me. Right. Well, and the message that you're never alone. I know a lot of times when people are experiencing various types of situations, they just feel very isolated and alone. And to know that there's somebody out there that can provide support or guidance or, you know, that others have walked in those shoes that maybe gives people a little bit of hope that there might be some some success in their future as well. Now, we're just a few minutes before we're wrapping up the show. So I just I was just curious if you could share with our listeners if there's any other projects. I mean, I know you're doing a ton of speaking and uh, across the country. Is there any other projects that you're working on right now besides school, actually, which is probably a big project? <laughs> sure, no, it is. But uh, there are a couple of things. Yes, actually, I'm working with, um, there's a, a partner I'm working with in New York City, and although this will be a national program, we're working on a model that would bring, it's kind of like, you know how Teach for America brings teachers to, you know, to kids in underserved communities? This mm-hmm. would be like that except for mentoring. So it would bring full-time paid mentors, exclusively to middle school students who are the least served. So, you know, a lot of research that we've been delving into in the mentoring field tells us that middle school is where we lose a lot of kids, that you can actually predict the high school dropout in the seventh grade. So we targeted this uh, critical time period, and we're going to create a national model that brings full-time paid mentors uh, to middle school students. And so I'm working on that now, and I'm launching that program. Our pilot will be in New York City in 2017. I'm really excited about that, and I'm working on another book right now that's about lessons people learn from their fathers, and that'll come out next year around Father's Day, and it's really about people re-examining the relationships they had with their fathers and minding them for gratitude and, and lessons they learned from them, and that's a result of all the letters I got after people read my book. They said, I read your book. I hadn't called my parents in 20 years. I picked up the phone. I forgave them. Thank you. So I'm responding oh, wow. to that by including... That's wonderful. That's, their, their parents in gratitude. Yeah. 
Awesome. Well, Liz, I just want to thank you so much for joining me today. I just enjoyed our discussion, and I thank you for sharing your experiences, your story, and the hope that you provide. And every uh, anything and everything that you are doing is pretty amazing. So thank you again for joining me today. And I want to thank our listeners for tuning in to another episode of The Journey, Stories of Christ and Hope. Please tune in every week Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time. And if you have any questions or comments about the show, you can email me at jpirovoiceamerica at gmail.com. So thank you so much for tuning in, everyone, and do your part this week to provide hope to others. Thank you for tuning in to The Journey, Stories of Crisis and Hope. Please join your host, Jessica Pirro, for another edition of the program next Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll see you here next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff, and management.